what I simply want to do today uh, is, is get us to the table, um, and the table is part of our practice every week in the season of Lent as a community. And by the way, later when we come to the table, you should just know we believe anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus gets to be at the table with Jesus. So if you're wondering whether you belong here, just know that's the principle for us, and we're really excited to see one another at the table, whoever you are. Um, so we're, we're on our way to that today. But before we get there, I just wanted to look. There's a text that comes to the church this week because there's this thing called the lectionary, which um, many communities around the world, they kind of use it to set their scriptural program for the week. And so there's a text that today, this Sunday, the second week of Lent, uh, many communities around the world are looking at. I just want to turn to it and reflect on it for a little bit with you on our way to the table. So let's, uh, let's just get into it. This is from the book of Mark. Um, Jesus is with his friends, his disciples, and he looks at them. And Mark, by the way, is one of those places in the New Testament where you see the story of Jesus, just the actual life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And there Jesus is with his friends, his disciples, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, I want to uh, just hang with this for a little bit before we move on. So he's with his friends, his disciples, and they've seen all this stuff going on. Like, they've been on quite a ride so far with Jesus, right? He's been teaching. His life seems to be embedded with a kind of significance that comes from the way he's living it. He's been healing people. They're, they're watching all of this go on, and they're trying to interpret it, right? And there's a, different, uh, a bunch of different theories floating around about what's going on in Jesus. And they named those right before this moment. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? What, what, what are you seeing in this moment in me? Like, how do you identify? How do you make sense of all of this? And then Peter said, you are the Christ. Now, Christ is one of those words in the Bible that, like, for the original community that this text comes from, it's just loaded. I mean, it's packed with meaning, which is kind of a problem because it's almost like the assumption here in the text is that, that we, we know all of that deep meaning for the word and we might miss out on it. So like, like Peter just dropped a bomb here and I, I want to dig into it a little bit. The word Christ uh, comes from the Greek. Christ or in the Greek it's Christos or Christos. And that's a translation or a Greek version of a word that comes from Hebrew, which is Messiah. Now maybe, maybe you've heard those words in Christian spaces or whatever. Christ in Greek or Messiah in Hebrew. And these words literally mean, like direct definition is the anointed one, literally the one who is anointed or who has been anointed. And the problem is, like, we're, I feel like we're still not any closer to getting it because, like, anointing is not a particularly regular part of most of our practices, most of our lives, right? Anointing, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've been a part of it, or maybe you can just think of this, right? Like, in one way of practicing anointing, uh, somebody might uh, put oil on your head. Even the thing that we did with ashes two weeks ago is, is not entirely unlike this because it comes on you, on your head. It sort of marks you. It identifies you. But in the case of anointing, what is specifically being said when a person is anointed, it's like if, if there's oil, if there's a ceremony, that's just a, a representation of the community's belief that God is like on this person, in this person, with this person, doing something through this person, endorsing this person in a very particular way. An anointed person is a person who is right at the center of God's action in the world. Like through that person, God's doing the things that they wanted God to do. But wait, there is more. I feel like a, like a TV uh, ad. Because um, it's not just that they're anointed and it's not just that anointed means that God is doing something in them and through them, that God's presence is with them. It's even more than that. They had a particular expectation of what God was going to do through an anointed person, 
And if we go back to the old, the old scriptures, the old memories, the things that shaped Peter's imagination, for example, we would discover that when the anointed one shows up, he's going to get his people on the right side of things when they've been on the wrong side of things for a very long time. They've been on, on the oppressed side of things, and he's going to lead them into the powerful side of things. They've been on the abused side of things, and he's going to lead them to the victorious side of things. They've been beaten down, and he's going to give them some status. He's going to lift them up. So Peter says, you're the Christ, and it's loaded, man. Now, this is what's interesting about this. For 2,000 years, the church has affirmed that. Like, we, we hear Peter say, you are the Christ, and we say, amen. We hear Peter say, Jesus, in you, that stuff's happening. And the church says, yes. And the scriptures say, yes. And Jesus, in this moment, doesn't deny it. He doesn't refute it, but look at what happens next. He sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Hey, what do you guys think's going on here? Peter says, you're the one. All that stuff we've been hoping for, it's happening right here. You're the one that's identified with the activity of God in the world that's for us, that's leading us into that good and beautiful future. And Jesus doesn't deny it, but he turns down the volume on it. That's interesting. He doesn't deny it, but he turns down. He, he pushed the mute button on it. Yeah, it's, it's true, but hold on. Like, don't, don't do anything with that yet. And then the next thing that happens in the text is even more surprising to me. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, and that's just a, a word for Jesus in this text, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly. Watch that. So he turns down the volume on the Christ thing. He doesn't deny it, but he turns down the volume on the Christ thing, and then he turns up the volume. He says this openly. He's really clear with everyone who wants to listen. Suffering is going to happen here. There are dark things ahead in the story of the Christ that you are tracking along with, right? Now, Peter, I love what Peter does with this because I can relate to him. Peter responds to this. <laughs> I love this. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> So Peter decides he's in charge, and Jesus needs a little time out. He says, Jesus, stop talking like that. But turning and looking at his whole disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. Side note, if you think you've had a bad day, if Jesus hasn't called you Satan in front of your friends, you're probably doing okay, all right? Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Um, what's going on with Peter and Jesus? What's happening in this moment? In 2010, uh, I go to the Middle East for the first time, and I go there on a conflict education experience. It's an immersion to the ways that things are broken, uh, the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, religion and land and history and geography and geopolitics all colliding in a really ugly way. And... Uh, I'm there for a few days taking notes and trying to pay attention and try to figure out what's going on. And I figure like, oh, well, I'm here to fix things, you know? I'm an American, I'm here to fix things. I'm a pastor, I'm here to fix things, you know? So, so I'm really trying to be helpful wherever we go. And then one day we go to a place called Hebron. Now, you might know the name Hebron because it's an ancient city. Its, it's, it's name shows up in the scriptures and it's still there today. And Hebron is a very, very important place. And I would say that Hebron is the place um, in the Middle East where I have most palpably felt the violence of the conflict, where you, you see the signs of it everywhere. 
Hebron really matters. Um, it is packed with religious significance in a way that, similar to Jerusalem. Hebron is where uh, people believe there's a tomb there that is Abraham's tomb. I don't know if you paid attention, but Abraham like really matters for the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims, like a really big deal. So everybody wants their claim on that city. And Hebron is also a place that has been marred with some of the most unspeakable violence in recent memory, where um, whole communities of people have been slaughtered by individual terrorists walking into places where they were worshiping and just mowed down with guns. Um, so Hebron is a really, really hard place. You walk through Hebron and there are streets that are like literally like an old west movie like where a tumbleweed goes by and there's nothing because uh barricades have been set up and that street's been like people are banned so no palestinians and no israelis can be there but for some reason tourists can so you walk down this dusty road and then on the other side of the barbed wire on that side are the palestinians and on the other side of the barbed wire on that side are the israelis and if somebody needs to pass through one of those sensitive checkpoints this is the one place in all of the, the holy land where i saw this particular thing so you have a pedestrian who simply wants to walk down a sidewalk but he's going to cross turf lines there's a, a concrete barrier that's erected in a tunnel and the, the individual who wants to walk uh, through there he kind of comes up near to that and he holds his hands up like this and an idf soldier uh, trains his gun on him and makes him lift his shirt and make sure there's you know no bombs there or anything like that, and keeps his rifle pointed on him until he goes all the way through, and he's about, you know, like a foot from the rifle's end. I mean, it's just a really palpably painful, um, tense place. You walk through the market uh, in Hebron, uh, the Palestinian side of the market, and you look up, and there's chain-link fence over this open-air market uh, above you. And you wonder, like, are they caging the Palestinians? And the answer is no. Uh, they're trying to protect them because there are um, particularly militant settlers who have um, taken over the upper floors of the buildings that look down over the market, and they throw things down there. Now, the fence isn't good enough to block some of the stuff, so there are tarps, too, because sometimes what some of these settlers will do is they'll put a pot of oil on the stove and heat it till it's like 500 degrees, and then dump it out the window on the people who are you know, trying to buy their groceries for the morning. And we're walking a little further down to a place where there's a gap in the fence, and while we're walking, a two-liter falls in front of us, and it's full of urine. And, and this isn't about size, because we could go all day about how both sides have their extremist elements that are doing terrible things. But you're there and you're feeling all of this and you're like, I, I want to I do something. <laughs> I want to help somehow. And then after this tour of Hebron, um, we go into a family's home in Hebron. It's a Palestinian Muslim family. And they're there to welcome us and show us their hospitality. And you can tell it's a really big deal to them that they are welcoming us into their home. So, you know, American Pastor Jay walks in and I'm like, I got this. Like, right? Like, I'm about to make everything right, you know? So, so I had been paying attention through the trip, and one of the things I had learned on my trip was that the word Taibay means delicious in Arabic. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be so smooth with you guys, right? So this wonderful family is serving us some food in their home, this, this Muslim family, and I'm eating it, and I say, Taibay. And they look at me kind of funny. And I, I, I realize they didn't hear me clearly, so I say, Taibay. And they look at me even more strangely, and I say, Taibei. Because like, I'm, 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 I'm going to make peace in this moment, right? Like I'm going to use their native language and just make everything okay. The reason I learned the word Taibei was because two days earlier, I had been in a, a village called Taibei, which is a Palestinian Christian village. And in the Palestinian Christian village, there's also a brewery called Taibei 
that makes beer. And the reason they named it Taibei was not just because the village is called Taibei, but because in Arabic, Taibei means delicious, which makes lots of sense. And I was taking notes. I was the one paying attention. They told me Taibei means delicious. What I didn't understand was that not in modern usage, the only thing Taibei means to any Palestinian who speaks Arabic in the year 2010 when I was there is beer. So Pastor Jay is in this Muslim home where there is no alcohol and they're feeding me and I say beer and they say, huh? And I say beer and they say, huh? And I say beer. I tell you this because it's a story about a moment in my life where I understood just enough of what was going on to totally miss what was going on. It's a moment like where I had just enough handle on what was happening to really completely screw up what was happening, right? I think this is Peter in this moment. Peter gets the Christ thing and Jesus doesn't deny it. Yeah, what you are seeing, you're, you're not mistaken. God is here. God has arrived. God is with you. God is for you. God actually wants to carry you into that beautiful future that you are longing for. But the problem is if that's all that you understand, you will understand just enough to totally miss what's going on. In fact, you might invest yourself against the good thing that's about to happen. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter's sentiment right here. He says, you're confusing divine things with human things. There's this this broken thing inside us that wants to get quickly to that good and beautiful future. God shows up and takes us to the easy things. And I think that what's actually going on is Jesus is saying, yes, God is here. And he's here to to work with you and carry you into a good and beautiful future. But you're not going to get there unless you go with me through the harder things. You're not going to get there if, if, if you're running from the darker things. In fact, in fact, it's possible that like the liberation we long for is waiting for us in the center of the things that we are running from. So Peter says Christ, which is full of hope. Yeah, there, there's a future that God is leading us into. I want to be a part of that. And Jesus says, yeah, but we've got to turn down the volume on that. And I've got to invite you into this paradox of the Christ and the cross. I gotta set things side by side in a way that you won't quite understand, but you've gotta cooperate with them. You've gotta surrender to them. Yes, God is here, and God wants to work with us and carry us into that good and beautiful future. But right alongside that, it's actually gonna feel like the opposite for a moment. I mean, it's actually gonna feel completely the opposite of that because on the way to that good and beautiful future, there are harder things that I have to take you through. For a moment, Peter doesn't get it, And so Jesus has to get louder and say, the way that we get there is through the harder things. And so the Son of Man will suffer. And if if you're willing to go with me through that, I will take you into that good and beautiful future. But if you can't understand that, you might end up running from the path that I'm trying to take you on. Now, for the record, I don't believe that God, like, delights in our suffering. I don't really believe that God directly likes to cause suffering, but I do believe there's a way of, of maturing, of evolving, of growing whole that, that is actually waiting for us in the dark and difficult pockets of our lives that we don't want to face. I'm not saying God like makes bad things happen so we can mature. I don't really believe that about God, but I know that God is calling us into the dark and difficult things because it's in those places where we, we can actually uh, heal and grow and go forward. And uh, I think that's what the Lent season is, is inviting us into as we wake our way toward the cross. Um, 
It's interesting, by the way, that sometimes churches can be sort of energized or shaped by the consciousness of that Peter moment when he doesn't get it. Sometimes even like spiritual communities, we, there's a way of talking about God. There's even, I think there's a way of, of singing songs, of worshiping, that it's really well-intended. But if you listen closely and you pay attention and you ask yourself, what's happening in this room right now? What you might discover is a group of people who are trying to say to each other, Messiah is here, Christ is here, so we don't have to do hard things. Messiah is here, Christ is here, so you don't have to face your demons anymore. I don't believe that. I think he's here to help us face our demons. Messiah is here, Christ is here, so it's all light from now on. I don't believe that. I think the reason the metaphor of light is so powerful in the scripture is because Jesus is leading us to face the dark places. And sometimes um, even a, a certain way of certainty, like I can't tell you how many times in my work it's been made clear to me that my job is to make you very certain so you don't have to wrestle with any doubt because the doubt is uncomfortable. And I just don't believe that's actually the project that Jesus is up to. So whether it's um, the demons that we are running from, the wounds that we've carried, um, doubts that we're afraid of, a certain cognitive certainty that we, we badly want to hold on to, or I, I don't know how that plays out for you, but I'm, I'm quite convinced that Jesus is saying, the good and beautiful future, I, I am here to take you into it, but we get there by going through the harder things. I remember I was even talking with uh, friends a little while ago. They, were all, um, they all work in finance, or finance, depending on how pretentious you are. Um, <laughs> that's actually their joke, just for the record. Um, they all work in finance, and a couple of them are, are going through the CFA right now, which is a, a, a couple-year process. It's a certification. It's a lot of studying and testing to get those three letters after your name. And then we talked about business school a little bit and getting their MBA. And then they asked me, they said, hey, what about your line of work? Like, what... Like, what kind of qualifications or what kind of training? And I said, you know, there's some traditional master's degrees that people might get. Uh, but the more I thought about it, I said, this might be not what you expected at all, but if you're asking me, like, what qualifies a person to lead a community of faith, to try to be a, a faithful echo of Jesus' leadership in a community, I would say the one thing I want to know about a pastor or a leader is what have they suffered and what have they done with it? I, I would like... Pastors that have some theological training, I think you should know some stuff. I think you should read some books. But if you're asking me, like, what's the synchronon, what's the, what's the necessity, what am I looking for um, to trust a leader to be a faithful echo of Jesus, I would ask, what have they suffered? And what have they done with that suffering? Because I actually think that, 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 that would be what unlocks the depth of this tradition for us, to go through the harder things with Jesus. And so um, the good news is for us as a church in this Lenten season, we, we actually have these gifts from the church, these practices. Like, I, I actually think like the fasting thing during Lent, really it's an invitation to turn to the harder things. Like for me in my life, like, so I'm doing um, uh, no social media and no drinking during Lent. That just means my evenings are boring <laughs> and kind of quiet because uh, I, I can't seem to find a, a great number of friends who are excited about, you know, drinking water with me. So... <laughs> So what, what that's done then is it's created some space in my evenings that wasn't there. And in that space, I've discovered some discontents that I didn't know were there. Discovered some insecurities that are rattling around inside me that I didn't know were operative in my life right now. And I don't want to deal with them. <laughs> but the Lenten practice is saying, maybe Jesus is in this season saying, let's go through the harder things. 
Let's look at the more difficult things and see what they say to us. Ronald Rollheiser is a, a priest and a spiritual writer, and he talks about Lent like this. He says, Lent invites us to stop eating, so to speak, whatever protects us from having to face the desert that is inside us. It invites us to feel our smallness, to feel our vulnerability, to feel our fears, and to open ourselves to the chaos of the desert so that we can finally give the angels a chance to feed us. To open ourselves to the chaos of the desert. I can't help but wonder if when Peter heard Jesus talk about the suffering that awaited him, if that was like a, a threat to Peter, where, where all he wanted inside was that calm, that, that easiness. And he knew that this would open up something more difficult within him. And so he resisted it violently until Jesus had to like get straight with him and say, no, Peter, don't miss this because you might miss the whole thing. So, um, so uh, today we'll come to the table. And it's interesting, um, in Matthew's gospel, another one of the stories of Jesus, there's another interaction that seems to have the same basic energy, but Jesus takes us closer to the table uh, when he says it like this. So this is in Matthew. I love this. So the sons of Zebedee here are James and John, and they're two of Jesus' friends and followers. <laughs> Their mom, I love this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And, she, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. In other words, she gets the Christ thing right? But she misses the paradox of the cross thing, right? So she's just holding part of the truth. She gets that something good's happening here, and she wants her boys to be in on the action. She gets that, like, there's something victorious about what's going on in Jesus, and she wants her sons not just on the winning team, but, like, recognized as the captains of the winning team, right? So she's doing the Christ thing, but she misses the paradox of the cross, and Jesus responds. Uh, he answered, you do not know what you are asking, right? Because you, you've missed it. Are you able to drink the cup, that I'm about to drink? Are you willing to go with me into the harder things? Because this path isn't a short circuit to the easy things. The good and beautiful future that we want to follow Jesus into isn't arrived at while we avoid the harder things. Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, and actually I love this, they said, we are able. What I actually believe is we are able. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we do it alone. But I think God is saying, I'm with you. We can do the harder things. We can face the harder things. And when he mentions this cup, um, he is surely speaking both sort of metaphorically about the cup that we'll even share today, but then more concretely that it represents the suffering that waits for him. Are you able to go with me into the harder things? Because it's, it's, it's through those harder things that this kingdom actually breaks into the world and you get to be with me in it. So today, um, we'll invite one another to the table. Uh, a couple of words about this. Um, first of all, uh, when we do it today, we don't have anybody serving you. We just wanted to let this be a, sort of a moment for you and God, a moment for, for you and your own sort of quiet thoughts, your own meditation. Um, and when you go forward, you'll see that what we have today is, is tongs, so you can just grab a piece of bread and a cup. If you wouldn't mind, um, please, and I'll even model it, please uh, remember it's flu season, so there's a, a hand sanitizer there. And uh, you can grab a piece of bread, and then uh, you can dip it in the cup, and you can take and eat that. Um, but here's what I would propose today. 
If, if we're going to come forward to the table, remember Jesus' question. Are you able to drink the, the, the cup that I'm about to drink? If you get the Christ thing, will you hold the paradox of the cross? If, if you are longing for that good and beautiful future, will you follow Jesus into the harder things in your life? And maybe today you'll actually come to the table with a particular harder thing in mind. Maybe there's a conversation you've been avoiding, a confrontation you don't want to have because it's uncomfortable. But maybe you'll come forward to the table and say, with your help, God, I, maybe I am able to do that harder thing. Maybe it's a wound that you've been ignoring. Um, it's in your psyche. It's with you, but you keep trying to kind of look away from it. And maybe the harder thing would be to turn to it and see what's there, see what's festering, see what hurts so bad. Maybe it would be to confront a, a difficulty in your marriage that you and your partner are pretending isn't there. Maybe it would be to... Um, Call a counselor and say, I need some help. I'm pretending that I'm doing okay, but I'm not. Uh, maybe it would be to uh, abandon an addiction or an attachment or a habit. Um, but if you're really honest, the thought of life without it's a little bit scary. Uh, but what I'd say today as we come to the table is let's, let's say yes to the harder things. We don't earn anything by doing it. I don't think God loves you more when you say yes to the harder thing. I think God is saying, but there's just... There are things that we can only have, that are only haveable if we walk with Jesus through the harder things. And I think that's the paradox of Christ and cross that we're invited to uh, today as we come to the table. So um, let me remind you that on the, day, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends, including Peter, and they had a lot of this Christ hope wrapped up in their hearts but he had to bring the paradox of the cross into that moment. And so he took a loaf of bread, something that sustained them, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took that cup, and surely he thought about this cup that he would drink. But he asked the sons of Zebedee, are you, are you able to do this with me? And he says, this cup represents my blood that will be shed, my suffering death that will be offered for you. And it also represents a covenant, a promise that when you do the harder things, you're not alone. God is with you. Even if you don't feel like God is, God is with you in the harder things. And he said, take and drink. So I'll pray for these elements, and then when I'm done praying, um, we'll just have a little bit of space. And if you'd like to, you can get up out of your seat and you go to one of these three corners. And as you come forward, maybe, maybe something inside you will say, yeah, let's do the harder thing, God. Maybe you'll offer that willingness today. Uh, let me pray. Loving God, um, we thank you for the Christ, the promise that you are making things new, that you are reconciling a world that is divided and conquered. We thank you for the Christ, the promise that you are with us and for us, that our human experience is not far away from you, but that you have entered all the way into it. We thank you for the Christ. But today we, we want to surrender to that paradox of the Christ and the cross. We want to be sober and aware that the good and the beautiful future might be waiting for us on the other side of the harder things. That the liberation that we long for might be waiting for us in the center of the things that we are running from. So I pray that you'd help us today. I pray that you'd open that up inside us today. That you would teach us to dance with that paradox. 
to surrender to it. As we come to the table this Lent, as we make our way toward Good Friday and Easter, to the harder things that give way to the more beautiful things, I pray that you would meet us in the table and the bread and the cup. That this would be for us the body and blood. That this would be for us a a tasted, visceral, embodied reminder that you are with us in the harder things. And I pray that you'd help us to say, yes, we are able as we come forward. And we pray through Christ.